Thanks so much for joining us today on Leesburg Community Church's podcast. If you'd like more information about our church, including directions and service times, please visit leesburgcc.org. On our website, you can also find notes and daily devotionals based on this teaching. Thanks again for joining us, and we hope you liked today's message. Good morning. We're continuing our series in the Gospel of Mark this morning. Our sermon is titled, Repentance, the Apostles' Message, and Herod's Folly. You'll see why in a moment. But before we get to that, I want to encourage you in your Bible reading this year. We're 19 days into the new year, a time when many New Year's resolutions have already failed. I saw an online post on January 1st, which a man said he resolved to read the Bible daily this year until he gets to Leviticus, which is only the third book. But many of the Bible reading resolutions are like that, I think, because we view Bible reading as something we ought to do. We view Bible reading as a duty instead of viewing it as what it is, which is a delight. So before we read our text this morning, I'm going to give you a reminder of the value of God's Word. At LCC, we place a very high value on the Bible, on the Scriptures. Paul Tripp is an excellent preacher and writer that I've had the privilege of working with a few times. He says there are five reasons that he opens his Bible daily. I think these may be helpful to all of us. We're going to put them on the screen. First, we read the Bible daily because the Bible gives us our identity. It is the It's only in this story that you will learn that you were made by God and for God and that everything you are and everything you have comes from Him and that you were made to live for something vastly more significant than yourself. You were made to live for God's glory by enjoying Him forever. Second reason that you might read the Bible every day. The Bible gives us understanding. We will never learn simply from human experience or research, or self-help books, or trial and error, how the world works, and how we are to fit into it. Our perspective is too narrow. God's perspective, on the other hand, as the world's creator, is all-encompassing. So the Bible gives us understanding that comes from God. Thirdly, we read the Bible every day because the Bible gives us comfort. The world in which we live is confusing, discouraging, and sometimes downright painful. The Bible helps us understand that there is a creator and sustainer of the world who exercises personal care for the world and for all of those who trust in him. Fourth, we read the Bible every day because it tells us about salvation. This is the ultimate reason for the word of God. Without it, we would not know that our greatest problem is not external, it's internal. Our greatest problem is our own sin. And if we don't read the Bible, we will not know that God has addressed our greatest problem by sending his son to die for our sin and to be raised from the dead to give us new life. So the Bible tells us of salvation. And then fifth, we read the Bible daily because the Bible gives us hope. The biblical account, the biblical story has a final chapter. One day, the sadness, the brokenness, and the sin in the world will end. Those who have trusted in Christ will be with him forever. God, the author of this book, has guaranteed it by raising the central character in the story, Jesus Christ, from the dead. He's guaranteed it. So, 
If you made that resolution to read the Bible, please keep it up. And if, you, if you're not reading your Bible daily, start now. It's never too late. And as you read, you will find your identity. You will gain understanding. You will see your need for a Savior very clearly. You will receive comfort in your trials. And you will receive hope, which comes from God. It's not temporary hope. It is for eternity. So, please open your Bibles or follow along on the screens to the Gospel of Mark 6, 7 through 29. We're going to look at two sections of Scripture. Uh, the first is the sending out of the apostles, two by two in verses 7 through 13. And then we're going to look at what happened to John the Baptist in verses 14 to 29. Why it happened, what it means to us. And then we're going to look for ways to apply both those things uh, as we go through the message today. So please follow along and we'll look at verses 7 through 13, the sending of the 12 apostles. And he called the 12 and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Let's pray together for the preaching of God's word this morning. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word, which is 100% true. Thank you that in each passage we find something about you and something about us, and we find the central character, the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, uh, bless my feeble lips as I preach this morning, and bless the ears of all who hear, uh, that we would hear your word, uh, put it into practice, uh, be further changed from one degree of glory to another as we hear and obey what you have said. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So Jesus now begins to expand his ministry. Up until this time, he goes and the 12 go with him. But now he sends them out as his ambassadors, and he sends them two by two. He calls them, he trains them. They have walked with him now for some time, and then he commissions them to go out in groups of two with his authority. Why go two by two? That's only six pairs. Why don't you send them out just individually? That way you have 12 people preaching. Well, they go in pairs for mutual encouragement. They go two by two because they're going to do this better than they ever could alone. Ecclesiastes 4, 9 and 10 addresses this issue. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. We are stronger together then we are alone. So the Lord sends them out two by two. But there is a second reason that they go out in pairs, I think. It's to enhance their believability, to increase the perceived veracity of their testimony about Jesus Christ. In Old Testament law, you could not be convicted of a crime. You could not be executed on the testimony of one person. There had to be corroboration on the testimony of two or three witnesses, according to Deuteronomy 17. This was well known. 
We still practice it today. So they went out two by two for their mutual encouragement and so that their testimony might be believed. And they also went with an incredible simplicity. Jesus, in essence, says, you're not going to take much with you on this journey. You're going to take a tunic, you're going to take a staff, and you're going to take a pair of sandals. Don't take any bread, so they got no food, a bag, there's nothing to carry in it because you're not taking anything, or a money belt. You're not going to buy stuff. The Lord will provide. In other words, they're going out as Christ's ambassadors in complete dependence on God who will supply all of their needs. They're to go on their, their journey just like Jesus went on his journeys with simplicity and with humility and in reliance on God. Jesus further instructs them to stay in the first home that receives them. And what he means is this. If they get to a home and they receive them and then they see that the guy across the street has a jacuzzi, they're not going to go across the street. They're not supposed to look for better accommodations. Stay with the people that you went to see until you leave that village. The parallel passage in Matthew 10 expands on this idea. Whatever town or village you enter, search there for some worthy person and stay at their house until you leave. As you enter their home, give it your greeting. If the home is deserving, let your peace rest on it. If it is not, let your peace return to you. I have a good friend named Jamie Winship. He and his wife Donna have served on the mission field in Indonesia, Iraq, uh, Jordan, and Israel. Heidi and I have visited them in all those places except for post-war Iraq. On our visit to Amman, Jordan, Jamie took me with him to observe uh, an ESL class, an English as a Second Language class, that he was teaching in a Muslim school in downtown Amman, Jordan. On the drive over, Jamie said, I'm going to tell them the story of the prodigal son today. I'm not allowed by the school to talk from the Bible, but I'm just going to tell them the story. And I'm going to ask them what the father should do when the prodigal returns home after having squandered his inheritance. And they're going to say he should kill him. He should kill the son because he has dishonored the family. So... I go, I sit in this little classroom in this school. There are about 25 young Muslim men there trying to learn English. And Jamie tells the story. Sure enough, he asked the question, and they said, kill him. The father should kill the son. So Jamie gave them a, a one-page writing assignment for the next week. He said, uh, write on one page a time when someone showed grace to you. And grace is not a big concept in the Muslim world. He said, show, write about a time that somebody treated you better than you deserve to be treated. Now, here's why I'm telling you the story. While Jamie is teaching these men who have been raised in an honor and shame culture, he's looking into his students' eyes to see if there are any people who are what he calls people of peace. When he sees receptiveness to the concept of grace, he then invites them to coffee or invites them to his home to share a meal and talk to them about the truth about Jesus Christ. Jamie is doing just what the apostles were told to do in Matthew 10, 11. Search there for some worthy person. Something you and I should be doing. Be on the lookout for those who are receptive to the message of God. 
Then Jesus gives further instructions in 14 and 15 of Matthew 10. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, leave that home or town and shake the dust off your feet. That was a Jewish custom. When they went outside of Israel and they came back, when they came back in, they shook the dust off their cloak and off of their feet so as not to contaminate uh, Israel. Shake the dust off your feet. Truly, I tell you, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than it will be for that town. Sodom and Gomorrah, we remember what happened there. It is a serious thing to reject the message of God. So, they are to go in simplicity, in complete reliance on God. They're not carrying anything with them that is not absolutely essential, but they did carry a message. They carried a message from the King of Kings, and it's the very same primary message that was stated at the beginning of John the Baptist's ministry and at the first announcement of Jesus' public ministry, and it's in verse 12 of chapter 6. They were to proclaim that people should repent. John the Baptist comes preaching a gospel of repentance and forgiveness of sins. And when Jesus Christ begins his ministry, he says, the time has come, the kingdom of God is near, repent and believe the good news. So, the apostles went out with the authority of Jesus. They preached repentance and many believed their message. But their message was not just in words or concepts. They performed healings and deliverances from demon possession. They were demonstrating that the kingdom of God had come in power. So, it's a powerful message to repent. Why don't we talk about it very much in many churches? Why, when John the Baptist and Jesus Christ himself preached repentance, do some churches shy away from discussing it at all? I think it's because modern attitudes towards sin have had an undue influence in the church. Even some pastors do not call sin, sin any longer. They come up with euphemisms to explain sin away. Therefore, in their way of thinking, if sin isn't really sin, then repentance isn't really needed. So they don't talk about it. Because sin is not thought to be what it actually is, which is an offense against a holy and righteous God. It's just a problem because after all, we're only human. But the scriptures know nothing of faith in God without repentance for sin. Repentance and faith always go together. A genuine sorrow for sin in which we turn away from sin and turn toward God to serve the living God. Not that we do a bunch of good works in order to make ourselves worthy of God, but that we turn away from it and we turn ourselves toward God and his word. Let's go to 1 Thessalonians 1 and see this clearly. For not only is the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we, have need, we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Did you hear that? They turned to God away from idols to serve the living God. That is genuine repentance that brings life, that brings peace with God. The apostles' message of repentance is more than merely feeling sorry for your sin. 
Everyone experiences sorrow for their wrongdoing in this life. Something they did that they know they shouldn't have done. Something that they know they should have done, but they did not do it. But godly repentance is more radical than that. Judas was sorrowful over his betrayal of Christ. But it was not a genuine repentance. It didn't produce life. So listen to the Apostle Paul as he speaks of genuine repentance in 1 Corinthians 7, 9, and 10. I think we have it on the screen. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So, repentance is the abandonment of sin and the turning to Christ. Repentance is the abandonment of sin and the turning to Christ. And faith involves the abandonment of trusting in yourself and trusting in Christ alone for salvation. Not Christ plus my church attendance, not Christ plus some sacrament, not Christ plus anything, but Christ and Christ alone. His merits, his glories, not mine. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Ephesians 2. So how can we apply the sending out of the 12 apostles to our lives? After all, we're not apostles. But we are, if we have trusted in Christ, his children, his servants, his body. We are the church for which he died. So here's some application. First, do like the apostles did. When God says go, go. When God says go, go. When God says speak, speak. And when you go or speak, do not rely on anything other than God and his word. You may use means. You might use a great book or a pamphlet or lights or sound or video screens or a book, whatever. Those are means, and we use them but we may not rely on them. We must rely on God. Remember the apostles, they they didn't take anything with them except the word, message. Bank on God and his word for your effectiveness. Here's the second application. Please, please do not try to live the Christian life alone. I have a friend down in Nashville, his wife, and he have not gone to church for about 20 years. Something happened in their church that they didn't like, and so they just stopped going. But we can't live the Christian life alone. Christ on this occasion and on others sent them out two by two. But remember Peter in the courtyard after Jesus' arrest? He was alone. And even though he had promised that he would never deny Christ, he denied him three times, just as Jesus had said that he would. We are not meant to live the Christian life alone. We're not meant to serve God alone. That's why we gather here on Sundays. To encourage each other. To sing to God and to sing truth to each other. And to hear the word of God preached. So that we can be more like Jesus. Okay. At this point, Mark stops the narrative to give us some history. To tell us about Herod's treatment of John the Baptist. Mark likes to do this. He'll start a story. Then he'll tell another story. 
And then he'll continue the first story. He did it in chapter 5. He's doing it again here in chapter 6. And you'll get the rest of the story next week when Doug preaches. At first glance, you might, not think, you might think, this is a really odd juxtaposition of things. The sending of the 12 and the beheading of John the Baptist, how are we going to fit that together? What does the sending of the 12 have to do with what happened earlier to John the Baptist? But there are some significant ties between these two passages. No mistakes in Scripture. First, John the Baptist is the last of the Old Testament prophets, and the apostles are to be the first prophets in the New Testament. Secondly, John MacArthur notes this, John was killed for steadfastly upholding the message of the kingdom and preaching against sin no matter who he offended. And the apostles would do the same. They faced similar persecution as they went out preaching repentance and faith in Christ. And thirdly, both of these passages deal with repentance in different ways. Repentance or the lack of it, as we'll see in the, lack, in the life of Herod. So let's dive into the story of Herod and John the Baptist. As background, Herod has now heard about all these miracles that are being performed by Jesus and his disciples, beginning in verse 14. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he's a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. He has a guilty conscience. For it was Herod who had been sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. So here are the characters in this sordid story. Herod Antipas is not a king, but he wanted to be. And Mark, I think, mockingly refers to him as a king in the scriptures. He was a tetrarch. That is, he was a ruler under Rome's authority of one-fourth of a kingdom that included Galilee. He had a half-brother whose name was Philip. And Philip had a wife named Herodias. Herod, the wannabe king, married his brother's wife, with whom he had an adulterous affair. To make matters worse, Herodias was also his niece. So in this affair was both adulterous and incestuous. On the other hand, John the Baptist was a righteous man who followed God. He denounced Herod for his sin and was thrown into prison. Herodias, now Herod's wife, hated John the Baptist because he pointed out her sin. She wanted to have him killed, but Herod would not because he feared John's holiness, the way a wicked man fears a righteous man. So rather than killing him, he put him in prison. But Herod liked to hear John speak. He thought John was amusing. Let's pick up the story in verse 21. 
But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. And when his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. So Herod throws this banquet for the political and military leaders. And on this occasion, Herodias' daughter, her name is Salome. We know this from the historian Josephus. She performs what is most likely an erotic dance for those in attendance. So you can begin to see the path of degradation that Herod and his wife are on. They have a clear call to, they have heard this clear call of repentance and faith and they have ignored it and they have continued in their wicked ways. So much so that rather than hiring a prostitute to dance, as evidently was customary, Herodias allows her daughter to degrade herself by dancing in front of these men. Salome's dance pleases the crowd. So Herod, in front of all his important guests, offers Salome up to half of his kingdom. She leaves the room to consult with her mother, and mom says, get me John the Baptist's head. Herod is greatly distressed by Salome's request. But now, because of his pride, and because he has made this promise in front of all of these important people, he gives the order, and the execution takes place. John's head is delivered to Salome, which she then presents to her mother, and Herodias now has her sinful, ungodly revenge on John the Baptist. But what is the result of Herod's choices? What is the result of hearing God's word preached by someone Jesus called the greatest among men, and then instead of repenting and believing, you're just amused or entertained? What's the result of that kind of life? Hardness of heart. The heart becomes seared against the truth, and sin becomes easier and easier and easier. Here's a more modern cautionary tale that may help us see the results of a life spent hearing but not believing. In the 1930s, the most famous living author was a man named William Somerset Maugham. His plays were widely read, and they, uh, his novels were widely read. His plays were produced thousands of times. His nephew, Robin Maugham, wrote in the London Times after his death this. I looked around the drawing room at the immensely valuable furniture and artwork that William's success had enabled him to acquire. I remembered that the villa itself and the garden I could see through the windows right on the Mediterranean were worth many millions of dollars. William had 11 servants and a cook who was the envy of all the millionaires on the coast. He was waited on by a butler and a footman but it no longer meant anything to him. He was 91 years of age. 
The following afternoon, I found William reclining on a sofa, reading a Bible with very large print. His face was grim. He said, I've been reading the Bible you gave me, and I've come across this quotation, what shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? He said, you know, that text used to hang by my bed when I was a little boy. Of course, it's all a lot of bunk. But I thought it was interesting all the same. He thought it was interesting. He thought it was amusing. Well, he died in the midst of shrieking night terrors, shouting, go away, I'm not dead yet. I'm not dead yet, I tell you. And I'm sure Herod left this life in much the same way. There's a hymn based on Psalm 32 where we can clearly see the difference between the guilt that comes from hiding our sins, failing to repent of our sins, and the peace that comes from repenting of our sins and trusting God to forgive us. It goes like this. Well, while I kept guilty silence, my strength was spent with grief. Thy hand was heavy on me. My soul found no relief. But when I owned my trespass, my sin hid not from thee. When I confessed transgression, then thou forgavest me. When I confessed transgression, then thou forgavest me. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1, 9. But not Herod. Not Herod. Herod kept his guilty silence. And he tried to hide his sin by putting John the Baptist in prison. And the scripture tells us that Herod heard John gladly and was perplexed by him, but he would not repent of his sin. And so his heart grew cold. He did not repent with a view toward changing. He did not turn from his idols to serve the living God. Herod knew that it was wrong to kill John. He didn't even really want to do it. But because of his pride, because of what other people would think of him after he had made this vow, he put John to death. He valued what people thought about him more than he valued what God had said. So how did Herod's life end up? The last mention of Herod Antipas in Scripture is in Luke 23. Pilate sends Jesus over to Herod. Pick it up in verse 8. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him, because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt and mocked him, and then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. Herod thinks that Jesus might amuse him. Maybe Jesus will do one of those parlor tricks, one of those miracles. And I can see it. That would be cool. Herod has no spiritual convictions. His conscience is seared by years of sin and the dismissiveness of the law of God. He now stands face to face with the one and only son of the one and only God, face to face with the one who made the world. And all he can do is offer him contempt and mock him. Herod is so jaded to the truth his conscience brutalized by years of sin, that all he can contribute to the world for eternity is a bad example. 
Do you know anybody named Herod? I bet you know a bunch of people named John. So how can we apply the story of Herod to our lives? What lessons can we learn from it? We can always learn from Scripture. First, you and I can become jaded to the truth if we hear it over and over again, but will not respond with repentance and faith. And the longer we do that, the more likely we are to have a dead conscience, the more likely we are to develop a dead and lifeless soul like Herod's. And secondly, it's a really dangerous thing to care more about what others think, friends, co-workers, neighbors, than it is to care about what God thinks, what God says. It's dangerous. And then whenever you read anything in the Bible, you should always go, what does this tell me about God? Here's something we can learn about God from our text this morning. God works through death to create life. He works through death to create life. God sent John the Baptist into the world to preach and then to die. He sent John to lose his earthly life so that others would live as he pointed the way to Jesus. And in that process, John gained everlasting life, which he has been enjoying for the last 2,000 years. God brought life out of death, the death of John the Baptist. But John, as great as he was, Jesus said the greatest among men, was only a forerunner of the one who was to come, that is Jesus, who also came to preach. That's what he did. Went village to village and preached. And then to die. To give up his life as a sacrifice for the sins of all who would trust in him. His death is like John's, but not like John's. John preached and died. John, Jesus preached and died. But when Jesus died... He was fully God and fully man. And so when he sacrificed his life, it was sufficient because he was God to save everyone who would ever believe in him, the millions of people that would believe in him. His death is sufficient for that. He died to pay the penalty for sin that we deserve but could never pay. So two things in closing. It's always dangerous when you hear a pastor say that. He might go another 15 minutes. Uh, but I really mean this. Two things in closing. One is for people who have not trusted in Christ yet, and the other is for people who have. So, if you've never placed your trust in Jesus, today is the day. Today is the day of salvation. You've heard the word. Don't delay repentance for sin. Everyone has sinned. All have sinned. And then place your faith in Christ alone, and you will receive salvation from your sins and everlasting life because of what Jesus has done. And if you have trusted in Christ for salvation, that is, you're a believer, but you gladly hear God's word week after week, year after year, but do not repent as you move forward, neglect his word, then your conscience will become progressively more desensitized to the word of God to the point where when he speaks, you may not hear him so well. Here's the good news. It's not too late. Hear his word today and respond. Martin Luther said uh, that the Christian life is a life of repentance. That is, we repent before we come to Christ. We turn away from our sin and turn toward the living God. But throughout our lives, we will sin on a regular basis. For me, it's daily. 
And we should repent day by day as we go and give thanks to God for his great salvation. And if we do that, our hearts, instead of being hardened like Herod's, will be pliable. I think it's in Ezekiel, it says, God says, I will take out your heart of stone and I will give you a heart of flesh. Take out the heart that is hardened against God's word and replace it with a heart that is sensitive to the things of God. When we repent and turn toward God, that's what happens. Let's be open to God's grace. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time together. Thank you for these people, each and every one of them that's in this room today. I just give you thanks for them, Lord. So many of them are your servants. They serve you on a regular basis. They love you. They read your word. Lord, help all of us to love you more and to read your word, to trust you. And Lord, if there's some in the room who don't know you, work in their hearts even now so that they would turn from their sin and follow you, the living God. Thank you for this time together. Thank you for your word, which is true. We pray together in the name of Jesus, our King. Amen.